Lord, would you bless our time together? Holy Spirit, would you lead us into all truth? And in the tenderness and gentleness, would you bring conviction? And we know you won't bring condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we do pray you'd bring conviction that we would find ourselves in submission to you. Lord, we want revival on the earth, but it has to begin with us. We have to clean our house. We have to look at our lives in accordance with your word and bring ourselves in alignment with you if we desire the earth to reflect your goodness, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Lord, for the parcel of ground we occupy with our feet, I pray tonight that that would be cleansed and would come in alignment with your will and your purpose and your standards, your commandments, and your law. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, so I'm not misrepresented, I'm not saying that the law saves us. You do understand that. You're not saved by the observation of law. You're, you're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But because you're saved, you're saved unto obedience to the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he, he wants to do that through his children. We're the instruments of righteousness on the earth. He wants us to establish his kingdom, that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. He wants people to know what his standards are so that conviction would come, so it would drive them to Christ. He's not here to con- condemn. John chapter 3 says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to forgive the world. We already stand condemned. We have conviction. And, and yet the Lord is wanting to bring us to repentance. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of, who, of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep what? Let's try that again. Who do what? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, hallowed it. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land, which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. And that's where we are tonight. The seventh commandment. Let's all do it together. One God, right? No idols. Let's do it together. That means together. Together? Let's try it. Come on. Hands up. Everybody, hands up. One God. No idols, right? Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, right? Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Don't murder. Well, we can do this way. That's five and six. Don't murder, right? And now we're going to take the word of God and thou shalt not commit adultery. Husband and wife, you don't commit adultery. Amen? That's the seven commandments that we've covered thus far. So I'm going to go into this in greater detail, but I want to read you some scriptures because I think the Bible does a better job teaching than I would. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's look at the order of the family. Ephesians chapter 5. 
Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. It's, it's an order here. And by the way, let's just take a picture. The Bible says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So the umbrella is the Lord. Everyone look at this. The umbrella is the Lord. And then it says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. So then it puts the husband underneath the Lord, and then it puts the wife here. And then it says, uh, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let every, the wives be subject to their own husbands and everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ has also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her in the cleansing and the washing of the water of the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies and he who loves his wife loves himself. We'll take a look at that momentarily. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then chapter 6 says, Children, obey your parents as unto the Lord, for it will go well with you. You'll live long on the earth. So of the four categories, God, Father, wife, or God, husband, wife, children, who is the weakest of the four? Children. Who has the most levels of covering and protection? Isn't that cool? Now, there's some strong women in here, but I could probably take you even at 53 or 52. And that's, I'm not here to insult you. I'm just saying there's, contrary to what the world's saying, there are differences in the sexes. There was one girl that I couldn't beat in arm wrestling and her name was Dot and she was <clears throat> shot putter for Fresno State. And I was humiliated. But he'd give me more time to work out, I might have been able to beat her. <clears throat> so physically and even connected emotionally, <clears throat> one of the things that when we saw Ken Graves share when God created man out of the, uh, uh, created woman out of man, this separation is, is, is the woman interestingly enough, contains all the emotions in that, and his point was very effective. He said, women suffer more than men. My wife and I just moved out of our house this week of 16 years. I'm like, good riddance. I love change. Let's go. My wife sat in the house and, and wept. 16 years of memory. She was walking through each of the rooms. Her heart was broken. She was struggling. Thank you so much, Tony. Cold water in Jesus' name. <clears throat> and, and she struggled over it, as, as did my daughter. I, I saw my daughter sitting with, with my son-in-law in, in her old bedroom crying. And he's, holding, he's got his arm around her as they're sitting on the floor of an empty bedroom. He has no clue why she's crying. I do. And... Uh, <clears throat> As, as they're sitting there, she's crying and she's just reflecting on memories. Everything's connected. And, and so here you, you have someone who needs covering and there you have the husband. And what's interesting is, is my wife is detail-oriented and she thinks of a number of things I don't even consider. My kids will come to me with, when they were little, they'd have a crayon drawing and I'd look at it and I'd go, what's wrong with you? You know, and my, my, my wife would go, oh, and you did a little sun up here and you got, and what's this? And she'd spend time and I'm like, ah this kid's not going to really amount to much. This is tragic. You know, I was not a very good father, but the point is 
here's the children, here's the wife, then the, the husband, and then the covering over all is the Lord. And God creates this building block of a family because that's the building block of society. Now, the statist, those who want to remove God from the equation, their desire is to break the family. The state only succeeds when the family is destroyed because everyone has to become dependent upon the state. In a family, who makes the decisions? The parents do. Are children a ward of the state or are they accountable according to scripture to the parents? Who has authority over the children, the state or the parents? Should be the parents. Well, it is the parents. We should defend that. Are you allowed to spank your children in California? How about with the foster care program? Are you, anyone involved in the foster care program? Are you allowed to spank the kids? And most of the younger generation has been raised to say that's abuse. And the Bible has very clear parameters for corporal punishment. You don't discipline in anger. You don't hurt the child. Um, but I'll tell you what, if my child's going to put a fork in the light socket, guess what I'm going to do? And, and they're going to cry. But that's all right. Because they'll remember this, and I won't have to give them CPR and mouth to mouth. Now, that's going away in our culture. That authority is being taken by the state. Marriage. How many people who are married have a marriage license from the state and went and got a marriage license? If a state has the authority to issue the license, they have the authority to take it away. We're going to cover that in a minute. Does anyone know where no-fault divorce came from originally? In the, in, on the earth. Huh? 1917, communist Russia. Because it's, it's status. And the state needs to break down the family in order to control the individual. Because you have no one defending you. You just destroy the umbrella. You destroy the family. And everyone is left to themselves and the state has you. What does the Bible say about educating your children? Raise your children in the way of the Lord. When they're old, they won't depart there. The Bible says according to their bend. So who knows their children better than anyone else? The parents. Hopefully, who spends the most time with them? Parents. Who's nursed them and understands how they operate? And I'm watching. I've got a brand new granddaughter. And I'm watching my daughter, and she's already figured out the idiosyncrasies. Oh, when she turns her head to the right, she, she wants to nurse. I'm like, wow, that's pretty fantastic. How'd you come up with that? You know, and, and you, you start to see this. And, and you know, you can, you can start to witness these things, and parents start to understand this. And if they do it in accordance with the Lord, in alignment with the Lord, and the principles of the Lord, there's wisdom in raising those children. How many people in this room have been affected by divorce? How many people have been affected by divorce as being a child of divorce? Raise your hand. So those are the victims in a divorce as the kids and society and culture. And, and no one really benefits from that in, re- in relation to it. So why would God say thou shalt not commit adultery? What was the purpose of marriage? Why did God create marriage? And by the way, it's the only estate that survived 
the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. It's the only thing that came out of the Garden of Eden was marriage. Why did God create marriage? I mean, we're Christians. We should know this. Why did God create marriage? You nailed it. Most people say procreation. How many people are thinking that? You can procreate outside of marriage, right? (laughs) Yeah? You don't need marriage to do that. So the point of marriage is the only thing in the Garden of Eden that God said it's not good that man is alone. I'll make a helpmate suitable for him. We've been created for relationship. We've been created for relationship. And that's where God said, let us make man in our own image. And that was a picture of the Godhead, a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Elohim. Let us make God a man in our own image. And it was relational. And he says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helpmate suitable for him. And, and he, he, he took him out of the woman. And, and as the old Hebrew idiom, when he said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, it's, it's a Hebrew idiom. It's a way of saying, <laughs> you know, he's, har, 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 har. she's fine. And, and, you know, rabbis say, well, God didn't take, it, take woman out of the head so that she'd rule over the man or out of the foot, that she would be under his, his, his authority, but from his side that they would walk mutually together. And by the way, submission, if there's a man in the room who's married, he said to his wife, wife, submit, you are, I just want to tell you candidly, you're a weak man. Or you've been in a series of weakness. It may not, you, you may have had a season of weakness and doesn't identify you as to who you are. But your wife is submitting willingly. And there's not a man on the planet worthy of submission. Not one. But God says to the woman, submit to me. And then I'm asking you to submit to your husband. So in obedience to the Lord, you submit to a fallible man as opposed to an infallible God, right? Everybody understand that? And it's out of a willingness You've, you've come together in a friendship. The Bible says that that's the purpose of, of marriage is a friendship. I married my best friend and, and you, the companion of my youth, my, my best friend. And, and the amazing thing about it is the two become one flesh. And so you have the trichotomy of man, body, soma. It says in Thessalonians, soma, psyche, and pneuma, body, soul, and spirit. So we, we connect on the body where we find each other attractive and then the, that's the soma and then the, new, or the, um, the psyche is the intellect. We enjoy each other's conversation and then the pneuma is the spirit of God and a cord of three strands, the scripture says, is not easily broken. And that's what's so important. And why does God say don't be unequally yoked? Because you're missing that, that third strand. And, and a marriage will work with two, but it's a lot of work. But if there's a mutual submission to the Lord, there's a mutual submission to one another and you see your roles in marriage. And most people enter into marriage because they go, well, this person's gonna make me happier. Now you're in trouble. You enter into marriage to serve the other person. If you're entering into marriage because you want them to serve you, you're gonna have problems. And so where does a marriage break down when it becomes about me? You're not meeting my needs. Now, when that starts to happen, that's selfishness. When that starts to happen, what occurs? The family is in trouble and the children are in peril and the victims of divorce are children. 
And so when the scripture says, thou shalt not commit adultery, God is saying, it's in, a, in essence, it is like idolatry. You're worshiping or loving someone other than the Lord. And he's saying, this is a microcosmic picture of Christ's love for the church. He is the groom, we're the bride. And he says to the husband, love them as Christ loved the church. Lay your life down. Husbands love the part where it says, you know, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, but they, they neglect the other passage. It says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wash her in the water of the word. Now, how many husbands spend time bathing their wife in the water of the word? And, and the scripture says to the man that, that in a sense, we're the priest of the home. We're, the, we're, 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 uh, we're thermostats, not thermometers. We set the spiritual temperature of the home. We don't come in and read it. We set it. Now we can read it and then set it. But if we come into the room with the idea of serving one another, and this is something I've done for 27 years of marriage where I get to the threshold of the door. And I remember early on when the kids were just running amok and I could hear it on the other side of the door and I, I knew what I was coming into. It was chaos. And I'd stop at the door and I'd have a rough day. And you know, you want to come in and kick your shoes off and say, hey, you know, I'm home. Woman, that's, that's going to work if anyone's ever been married for about a nanosecond. I'd stop at the threshold of the door and I'd say, God, would you make this the best part of my day? Would you give me a heart to serve the chaos on the other side of this door? And I'd walk in and grab the baby and, you know, honey, what can I get you? And I'm tired too. And the amazing thing is, is that when you start to pour yourself out, they respond. Not that we love God, but that he what? first loved us. Husbands, we initiate the wife responds. We initiate the wife responds. And, and when you initiate in a marriage, you can initiate with agenda. You want something, so you're going to play a game because you're selfish. And if you haven't spent time with the Lord, you've got your own agenda apart from the Lord, and you've been filling yourself at home with, or, or at the office with all kinds of images, and you, you've been sowing to the flesh, and you're coming home wanting to feed the flesh. Now you got problems because your head's spinning, and, and, and you have an agenda that's contrary to what God wants, and yet you're the priest of the home, and you come in, and all of a sudden it starts to divide a little bit. And the Bible says a man can't hold a hot coal in his lap and not get burned. And you've been feeding that all day. And you come home with expectations that are not of the Lord. And anyone who got married because they think sex is why you get married, I mean, let's just do the calculations. I mean, 27 years of marriage, what amount of time involves, and I'm not going to get into my private life, but it's, it's, it's not a lot. Life, in married life, consists of a massive amount of serving and laying your life down and instructing and pouring in and, and dying to yourself and loving one another as Christ loved the church. And the byproduct, and what's interesting, is why did God create sex? Not so that we can indulge the flesh. He created an expression of intimacy that the two will become one flesh. When you connect on all three levels, Soma, Psyche, and Numa. And, and my son, Daniel, my oldest boy, he, he's sweet on a girl. Stop it. He's sweet on a girl. And uh, he came to me, he said, you know, Dad, I want to call her my girlfriend. I said, well, son, she's a girl and she's your friend. 
He goes, no, not like that, Dad. He goes, I mean, and I had a long talk with him. I said, son, the Bible says you, 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 you treat another woman like she's your sister. Don't do anything with her that you wouldn't do with your sister. And he's like, ooh. <laughs> and I said, you know, you, you, you keep your way pure as accordance with the Lord. Why is that, son? He goes, why? Well, I don't know, Dad. I said, because she's not yours. God hasn't given her to you. And that might be another man's wife. That's adultery. In one sense, it's fornication, but ultimately it could be adultery. And, and you're to encourage her on her walk with the Lord. And one of the fascinating things is if you want to connect on all three levels, the people who are having the best sex on the planet are the people who are connecting physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Both are in accordance with the Lord, and, 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 and the Spirit is telling the, the mind what the body's to do. And two people are walking in accordance, and, and there's just this joy in the presence of the Lord, and there's a connection there. It's fascinating. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. It's satisfying. It's, it's powerful. And I, and I told my son, I said, son, it's Pandora's box. I mean, you're, you're going, and I gave him the illustration, you're going down the river, and, and you're in a canoe, and the water's kind of, you know, it's a pleasant stream, and you're enjoying it, and it's getting wider, and it's getting a little faster, and it says danger, waterfall, you know, a mile ahead, 800 yards, 500 yards, getting a little faster. Well, you, you, I feel like I can control this. And before you know it, you're over the falls. It's out of your control. And, and you're cashing checks that you don't have a bank account for. That's not yours. And, and you're affecting somebody's psyche and their future and, and their innocence that's supposed to be reserved for the marriage bed. And we don't, we don't put that forward nowadays. We want our girls to dress like objects and guys treat them like objects. We let them go dressed to, you know, what you win somebody with is what you win them to. If you win them to your body, if you win them with your body, you win them to your body. And I said, son, there's nothing wrong we're just sitting and talking with somebody for hours on end without having to hold hands and kiss. Because really what you're doing is you're investing countless hours to get to know them. And the problem is people who engage physically first have no idea what to do when they get into marriage because they don't have anything to talk about. They don't know each other. And then if pregnancy comes as a result of that, then you got kids that you're raising and all kinds of obligations. And by the time the kids get out, you look at each other and go, I don't know who you are. And wait till you hit 50 with that midlife crisis. That's a doozy where your body changes and you're like, oh, I just don't know if I, I just, you know, you're, you know, and you go through a struggle. And, and, and to have somebody who's your best friend who understands that and walks through you with it. It's a, it, God's designed it powerfully and insightfully. And, and he says very clearly in this passage, do not commit adultery. You know what adultery is? It's a violation of a friendship. You made a pact and a promise that this is for you. I, I set this aside for you. If you give an inheritance to your kids, I, I, I had a gold watch I got from my great uncle. And on my son's walkabout, I gave it to him. And my dad's military sword, I gave it to my other son on his walkabout when they turned 13. Now, if I turned to him, I said, you know, I know I gave it to you, but I'm going to take that back. I want to give it to somebody else. I would crush them. Do you understand that? It's a friendship and one built on trust. Now, if you sow to the flesh, you'll, you'll reap death. And, and the, the Bible says that, that this idea that, that 
when, when, when temptation unites with, 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 with sin, it conceives death. Is that right? Yeah, James. It conceives death. The end therein is death. Death to a relationship. And, and where does all sin begin? The most powerful sexual organ we possess, our mind. And your head turns. Now, I, I, ah, me, I, mine, and just trash everything else. And oftentimes people come in and say, you know, I, I'm struggling here and struggling there, and I, I, I really love this other person. I don't love my wife anymore. I don't love my husband anymore. I go, all right, well, let's just, let's just count the cost. Because if somebody's going to build a, a tower, they need to count the cost. So let's just look at some of the costs. I want to read this to you. And, and this, is, this is a secular argument. In America, adultery is no longer a crime. And, and it says, but sexual strain from marriage remains very costly, if not criminal. It was recently estimated that a typical adulterous husband invests almost $26,000 over a four-month period in conducting an extramarital affair. Once his wife discovers his philandering, he can count on another $5,000 in legal bills plus $1,800 deposit on a place to live after she rejects him from his home. Quite apart from its immorality, adultery is a terrible investment. Only 5% of men and women who leave their marriages for someone else actually end up marrying that person. It doesn't work. Um, you can do the math for yourself. It'll cost you your reputation. I mean, let's just count the costs as we build this tower. It'll cost you your reputation. It might cost you your job. Remember uh, uh, Sanford from, um, was he a senator? Carolina. It'll cost you money. The bad thing about losing your job is that affairs are expensive. Secrecy and cover-ups come at a price. A couple thousand dollars easy, but it won't end there. Divorce, divorce lawyers aren't cheap. If it's contested, it will prob- it, and it probably will be, plan on fifteen to 20000 down the drain along with roughly half your assets. And don't forget alimony and child support. And then the state come, gets involved and your children, get, the judge gets to decide where they spend time. That's real pleasant. It'll probably cost you your family. Two-thirds of marriages are toast after an affair. Most of those that survive take years of repentance, forgiveness, counseling, healing to find any sort of restoration. It'll cost you your friendships. Betrayal hurts all relationships. I, I've, I've experienced that. Why are you talking to him? I was your friend. You're both my friend. It costs friendships. It'll cost you your emotional health. People start affairs because they get an emotional charge out of a new relationship. It doesn't last, and the fallout is almost always emotionally jam- damaging. And, and, and think about the emotional health of your, of your children. It'll cost you your legacy. It might cost you your soul. What percentage of men are unfaithful? About 21% of men are unfaithful, about 15% of women. But what's interesting is... Um, I think that represents a 52% increase in America since no-fault divorce. What percentage of men would cheat if they knew they'd never get caught? 74%. How about women? 68%. How many men who cheat are happily married? Marital discord often leads to infidelity, but in at least one study, 56% of husbands who admitted to cheating said that they were happy with their marriages overall. Oh, they like the convenience of the marriage. They like the family. They like uh, the status but they want what they want. Uh, Same thing, 34% of wives would say that. How many people admit to cheating just once? I'm not going to go through all these, but um, 
does a high IQ make you more likely to cheat? There's a number of these. These are all just, these are just all secular arguments. But I want to take a look at this. Family, family failure, the failed history of no-fault divorce, 1970. Opinions vary as to the precise origins of the no-fault divorce law. In the United States, it was the crowning achievement of the feminist movement. The principal advocacy group for no-fault divorce was the National Association of Women Lawyers, as stated in a white paper published in 1948. It was first passed in the California legislature 21 years later and signed into law by Governor Ronald Reagan. As President Ronald Reagan would admit decades later, signing the law was the biggest political mistake of his life. No-fault divorce did not reduce perjury in family court proceedings as professed by its advocates. It was not a legitimate premise to write such a law in the first place. The Family Act of 1970 only succeeded in giving financial incentive to the non-breadwinning to initiate a divorce for financial gain. It explains how such a law could be disguised as a family act while duplicitous in promoting family disintegration. The status, those who believe the state is the supreme authority, quickly form coalitions like, uh, of like-minded liberals to formulate a public relations campaign to market gender equality in the home, and so to remove the design in, in Ephesians 5 and 6. The law passed in 49 of the 50 states, the economic fallout, is that the middle-class income disparity began to widen as the middle-class buying power began to decrease as single-parent households could not sustain themselves. If you are for the status quo of continuing to decimate the economic viability of the middle-class, no-fault divorce is is, is as American as apple pie. For a status feminist, it was the most punitive method to compensate the non-breadwinner for marriage infidelity and abuse of a spouse. You get half the estate, and actually the women usually get to keep the kids, tears husbands apart, even if there was infidelity in the mother's side. The idea of awarding monetary compensation of the marital home premise on the continuation of the quality of life for children of divorce, as well as splitting uh, pecuniary assets to not breadwinning post-divorce is in actuality redistribution of wealth, pure and straightforward. This garnishment of the breadwinner's assets has decimated the American nuclear family. Unfortunately, the theory of reducing perjury in the family court as the primary motive for the law does not hold true. It should be no surprise to discover that no-fault divorce was first instituted in communist countries at the very onset of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. The new communist government's proclamation on the family was made by Vladimir Lenin himself in a decree that exact year. Joseph Stalin said, America is like a healthy body and its resistance is threefold, its patriotism, its morality, and its spiritual life. If we can undermine these three, America will collapse from within. The manifestation of these theories on marriage were philosophically made by an unemployed derelict and intellectual brethren, Friedrich Engels, published manifesto, The Origin of Family, Private Property in the State in 1884. It disposed of the male domination in Russian family life and replaced it with legal parameters to create the classless society. My daughter, Natasha, could never go back to her home in Russia because when you are put in an orphanage, you now become a ward of the state and your parents no longer have rights. Vital to this exercise is a um, repossession of the marital assets, the home, as it became a ward of the state in post-divorce. The state can tell what they're going to do with your house, your property. Um, Has America become less secular since 1969? No, we've become more secular. Statistics today demonstrate that the no-fault divorce law in all 50 states has the American nuclear family broken perpetually. This disintegration of the social fabric is vivid in one statistic alone. 
out of wedlock birth in America is at 45.3% and rising. This fact mirrors that most of Western Europe and the former Soviet states and out-of-wedlock births in Europe are as follows, 43.7% in the UK, 60% in Norway, 60.5% in Denmark, 61% in France, 62% in Iceland, 70% in Finland. Um, The United States is experiencing the evidence that socialism and the high tax culture it professes to fund entitlement programs of the hapless will split us asunder. Here is no clear evidence that liberalism is a politically bipolar philosophy when it reduces the size of the self-reliant, either lowering its birth rate or decimating it economically. For status, the decimation of the family is the greatest tool they have to control human humanity and to silence the gospel. And yet in the church, we don't honor marriage. <clears throat> we just don't do it. So... Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you would. Verse 1, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, which, by the way, the church at Corinth was a dysfunctional mess. A son was sleeping with his father's wife, stepmom. People were drunk at the communion table. Corinth uh, had the temple of Diana, Aphrodite. A thousand temple prostitutes would come into the city to ply their trade. And every woman in the city, every married woman in the city, one time a year had to serve in the temple. And this was also in Ephesus where the ships would come in and the women were required to come down and ply their trade. And then what they garnered, they'd give to the temple to keep it operating. Imagine what that did to the family. That was a real gem. So Paul has to go in and transform culture with a theonomy that this, this concept would transform Western culture. Where did we get our marriage laws? Where did we get this idea that, you know, before no-fault divorce, you, you, you would face, you had to go to a court and, and say that this person was unfaithful. What are the two grounds for divorce according to the scripture? Does anyone know? Adultery. Abandonment of marriage by non-believing spouse. And Paul wrote that because his wife left him. He had to be married. He was a Sanhedrin. And his wife just left him. I don't want anything to do with Christianity. She left. And you're not bound by that, Paul says. And the scripture pointed it out. And adultery is another grounds for divorce. Why? Because he just broke a friendship. He crushed him. Now, you get, to, you get to divorce. If there's adultery, you get to. But does God want you to? He hates divorce. Is it the unpardonable sin? What's the only unpardonable sin? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, God testifies through all creation and through the scriptures and the prophets and the Father and the Son. And then now what's left is the Spirit testifying. And if you, if you deny the conviction of the Holy Spirit and turn that away and you get from point A, which is birth, to point B, which is de- de- uh, death, and you haven't reconciled, be re- reconnected to God when you die, you have... You have created blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, walking away from the Lord, and you, you enter into eternity without your sins being covered by faith. That is the unpardonable sin. But marriage is one that God doesn't screw around with it. He doesn't screw around with it. And listen, I, I'm not here to condemn. I know every, every, everybody in this room has been affected by divorce. Everybody. My best friend, Leon Eshnick, was, was murdered 
And I remember the very first time I witnessed divorce when his father left his mother and committed adultery. I remember them screaming and I remember him coming over to the house and crying. And my parents weren't even Christians, but they were faithful, you know, in that, in that sense. They stayed married 55 years. And, and I, they, I believe there was infidelity on my dad's part, not my mom's. But they stayed together, worked through it. And I watched as they couldn't hold up the home where they were living. They had to move to a pretty seedy part of town over in San Diego. And then he was on a Halloween party and he got stabbed to death. I've watched all kinds of families implode. The kids suffer. First Corinthians 7, Paul writes, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is not good for a man not to touch a woman. Oh, it's good. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. So listen, men are driven that way. Uh, do you have that slide? I want to show you the difference between a man and a woman with a simple machine. Uh, I think it's a fascinating machine. In the top, there's an on-off switch for the man. And for the woman, there's a lot of dials and things there. And some of you are going, that is so not right. Just look at it for a little bit. You'll, you'll grow. It'll grow on you. Give it, give it some time. I mean, seriously, I mean, the wind blows, man, it's on. Okay, let's move on. Some, some aren't laughing, I'll hear it later. But the idea is, because of what? Sexual immorality. Is there temptation on, on the earth? I mean, think about it. It's just, we're saturated in our culture. And now with the advent of, of you know, smartphones, which are windows into hell, you have access to everything imaginable. I remember the first time I came across a bag of, of pornographic magazines that, and guess where I came across them? In a divorced home. My, my best friend, um, he was the youngest of three brothers. The father uh, committed adultery as a Navy pilot, took off with another woman. My parents came alongside this woman and took care of her and helped as she was going through this divorce and helped with the three kids. And the oldest son just melted down after the divorce. I mean, it happened at a time where he was just going through, you know, his teenage years. Uh, he was in junior high. I think he was 13, 12 or 13. And um, had access to pornography and his dad had it. And he'd, he'd come home after visiting his dad and had these bags. And he got tired of this one bag, gave him to me. And, uh, and I just remember that was the first introduction to me. And, and this is something that it's a trigger. And, 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 and I'm going to be graphic in a sense. So that's the on switch for the guy. It's visual. And, and all of a sudden, you see this and it's self-indulgence. Because the, the women in the pictures, I had no idea who they were. I didn't know anything about them. I don't know about their family life. I had no psychological connection and no spiritual connection. It was all physical. It was actually just, just, they were objects, objects. I could care less that they were from broken homes. I could care less that they were doing this because they had a drug addiction that they had to suffice. They weren't human beings to me. They were objects for my pleasure. And it didn't matter their destruction and what they had to engage in. I was going to feed that as I, as I got older. And, and quite honestly, adultery is the same for a male as it is with pornography, you're engaging in self-fulfillment 
And instead of using a magazine, you're just using another human being. Well, I feel connected to them. Well, you have no idea what that means because you've already abandoned one for another. And what initiated was your selfishness to begin with. And, and I'm not just speaking to men. I, I am in the sense that I am a man. It's easier for me to relate in that capacity. But women, you, you get the same deal. And even today, where men are mostly visually drawn, it's starting to happen in our culture that pornography is rising in, in, in the female ranks. We're all becoming visual because a woman will look at pornography now, these young girls, because it's so proliferated our society that they're trying to find identity. So they want to act that part. And so there's a whole different motivation for what they're saying. And this is what's happening in our, our, our schools and our kids. And you look at some of the vile apps that these kids have access to and the stuff that they go through. And why not? Mom and dad are doing it. But the scripture says, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband, listen, let the husband, let the husband, did it say let the wife? Hello? Okay, let's begin with the husband's responsibility. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. Turn that slide on again, please. It says affection due her. Every one of those dials has to be tuned in. You need to know that machinery. And I'm not reducing a woman to machinery. I'm speaking illustratively. How's that? What's that? Yeah. That there, there's, you got to understand everything that, that, that gets that machine operating. Render the affection. You know what's really sexy to my wife? When I pick up my clothes. You know what's really sexy to my wife? When I am clearing the dishwasher and taking the trash out. When I'm changing a diaper. When I'm rubbing her feet. What are those? Those are, those, that, those are acts of service. I can tell my wife through the course of a day, a thousand times, I love you. I, lo- I can wake up and say, honey, I love you. And, and I'll call her through the course. I, yeah, you must be wearing tennis shoes because you've been running all through my mind. You know, coming to all kinds of things. And I'll call her and, you know, tell her stuff. And, and I, through the course of the day, just telling her I love her. And, and we get to the end of the night, we're laying in bed. She says, do you love me? I'm like, really? I mean, I was, I was, I thought I dialed that thing in here. I don't, I don't know what, uh, did, yeah, of course I love you. Yes. Is there something that I've missed here? What's going on? How can I serve you? That's really sexy. How can I serve you? You ever try that one? How can I serve you? Is there something that I could bless you with? And in a lot of cases, you know, it really turns around is when, when she sees me reading the word because there's an assurity and a comfort when she sees the way I interact with the children, you know, it's a turnoff when I'm yelling at them. That's a huge turnoff. Because I'm, I'm not in control of myself nor my relationship with the Lord and I'm taking it out on, on those things that she, the, the children that she's emotionally connected to and loves and has been nurturing. And I come in kicking the dog and barking at the kids and, you know, because I'm the man. Well, you're a waste of space. And, and you, you, you're, you want to turn that switch on. You already came home with that switch on. 
She didn't have to turn that switch. You've already turned that on. You self-turned it. And you just forget all the buttons and the dials below. You're me. Me. Christ did not come into the world to be served, but to what? And to give what? His life as a ransom. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. But because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife an understanding of every dial. Do her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. Verse four, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Self-control. You've been turning that switch all day, guys. You have no self-control, self-indulgence, self-focus, self-me, self-self. And you come home and you want something, but the Bible says, render to her first the affection due her. And there's only two times that you, you can say no. And that is where, where you agree that you cannot deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. So if you want to say no to the advances of your spouse, you better be fasting or praying. And I'll tell you what, when someone comes home and they're pornographically charged, you can say, no, I'm going to take that to prayer. And guess what? They're in the right, but you better be praying. They come home charged and they got their button on. You know, I'm going to fast over this because I, I'm burdened by, I can see in your eyes, this is not of the Lord. You've got things in your mind and you've been doing these mental gymnastics with whatever you've been watching or looking at, or I'm not that person. Let me pray and get to this place. And you better be praying and fasting and with mutual consent. I think you need to do it too. And if they say no, come talk to me. Because the idea is we're in submission to the Lord. You don't come home and that object is waiting for you. See, the scripture says your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your spouse. Right? Is that what the scripture says or am I just making it up? Husband, you don't have authority over your own body. The wife does. And you got that switch on and she goes, what? (laughs) Let's talk about this. I don't want to talk. Well, I own your body. We're going to talk. And then it says, in the same respect, that the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. So you Bible says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then it goes on to say, no man, every man loves himself. And so the Bible says that the entire law of the prophets is encapsulated in two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. So if you love your neighbor as yourself, 
How do you love your spouse as yourself? The Lord is making it very clear. Step into their shoes. What kind of a day have they had? Walk through it. Talk about it. What draws you to this? I want to understand you because I have authority over you. So talk to me. Tell me what's going on. Why is, what's, the, what's going on? Communicate. God gave us this verbal communication to connect physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Otherwise, you're just going to be participating in an act. Why do you think pornography is so debased and, and so humiliating and ultimately leads to, in, in a sense, violence? Because you have two people participating in an act that was created to express intimacy, and neither of them are connected to the other. And so they use the other person. They're just objects. And God's saying, no, this is intimacy like the Godhead. What's going on with you? What's the Lord been showing you? What kind of a day have you had? Let's pray over this together. Walk through it. Well, one of the things you don't do is, you know, you don't, you don't use the bed as a weapon. Never know, and I don't even want to talk to you, and, and you, you, you are vile, and you're warped, and you're pervert. Well, guess what? That spouse is never going to open up after you have completely dumped on them. Figure out why. Why is this so important? Talk to me. Anyone getting this? I mean, you came on a Wednesday night. You knew what the seventh commandment was. I don't feel sorry for you. And and we are called to self-control because we're submitting to the Lord. Verse 6, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. And then he says, for I wish that all men were as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. And the idea is Paul was single and he brought his body into submission. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And then the scripture goes on to say now, To the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and as a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but they are now holy. You're under a covering of the home that honors God. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, let me share this. I am not advocating that you stay in a marriage where your husband is lying through his teeth or your wife is doing the same. The Bible says it's better to live on the corner of a rooftop than in a home with a contentious husband or wife, translated spouse. And then Solomon goes on further to say it's better to live in the wilderness. I mean, we tried the rooftop. I'm going to the desert. You stay here. You go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. You just go to your opposing corners and wait and seek the Lord. But in the process, you ask the Lord to change you. And I I got news for you. We already counted the cost. And, 
And temptation, when it's united with our will, conceives sin. And when sin is fully formed, it produces death. Count the cost. Look at your kids and say, I can't wait to see whose family you're going to spend Christmas at and Easter. And I can't wait to have another man raise my kids in my absence. And all of us know the pain of that. But my, my, my heart for the study tonight is let's apply it now. We've all been affected by it, just like we did last week with abortion. We've all been affected by it. It's not a time of condemnation. It's a time of observation and application so that these truths would protect society and we contend to apply them fervently in our culture. If we don't do it, who will? And then let's go to John chapter eight. I'm almost finished. Look at verse four. A woman was caught in adultery. They drug her. She was naked. The man wasn't there. They just brought the woman. And they said to Jesus, verse four of John chapter eight, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his fingers, though he did not hear. Isaiah says that he writes our sins in the dirt. What do you think he's doing as he's writing? He kneels down. All these people drug this woman, buck naked, and they say it's time to stone her. And Jesus just doesn't say anything. He just begins to write in the dirt. I can only speculate, but I think I got an idea. Tom, Betty, Moisha, and Ruth. Guys are looking down going, I, I, I'm supposed to be home for dinner. Just peeling off. And he keeps writing. And I asked you earlier, according to Jesus's redefinition of or inclusion of the definition. You've heard that said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who looks lustfully has committed adultery. Everybody starts walking away. And he stoops down and he writes with his fingers, though he did not hear. So when they continued asking, he raised himself up and said to them, he was without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. Go ahead. Uh, Tom, Moisha, Ruth, go ahead. And with those piercing eyes and the conviction of the law applied to the culture. And then it didn't seem to work. So verse eight, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience. What was he doing? He was applying a law to culture and conviction came. And they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. The older people were like, I've been down this road long enough to know he's talking to me. And Jesus was left alone and the woman was standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and commit adultery again. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I was just seeing if you're awake. 
Don't do it anymore. Hey, we're all guilty. Can I please get an amen? Don't do it anymore. Don't do it anymore. And bring conviction in the culture. Tell people, don't do it. And you can only say don't do it when you're not doing it. Seventh commandment. 